0: Hello there, and welcome into another edition of The Intersection, with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, some insight from Bob Merritt, who pastors a large church in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Listen as he shares about embracing the new person whom God has made us to be and enjoying victory over the patterns of the old life. Plus, Randy Newman of the C.S. Lewis Institute visited with me not too long ago. In our conversation, he related some of the results of research into how people came to Christ, information that can be relevant to the church's approach to evangelism. Find out more ahead. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, I want to return to a topic that I address periodically, and that is the limitation of content through social media, which has certainly affected Christian and conservative individuals and organizations. Dan Gaynor of the Media Research Center's Tech Watch reported on a recent hearing before a congressional subcommittee on the overall topic. Then, the second ministerial to advance religious freedom was convened recently by the State Department. David Curry of Open Doors USA offered some analysis on the conference and outlined how his organization was involved. Hear more ahead. Finally, author, speaker, and counselor Luann Dunnock, providing some perspective into how the soul and body are related, emphasizing how trouble in the soul can be manifested through the physical. This is The Intersection, of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Bob Merritt serves as senior pastor of Eagle Brook Church in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. He shares encouragement on embracing the new person in Christ and escaping the old life. As he relates in the book, Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. Here now is Bob Merritt. Yeah, it really comes
1: from a deep place in my life, Bob. I'm 62 years old, and I'm a pastor's kid. So I've been around Christianity all my life. I was in the church all my life, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you name it. Um, My dad was, was the pastor and preacher, and I listened to him, and I regard him highly, uh, and so I've been around the Bible and Christianity all my life, and over, over the years, I began wondering, well, what's wrong with me? Uh, I'm a Christian. I, my trust is in Christ uh, fully, and yet I hear people say, well, if you're in Christ, the, the old life is gone, the new has come. I, I would hear people say, you can be completely free. In Christ, we're free, you know, and and I, I began to question, well, if I'm free, if the old life is gone, how come I still struggle with sin, uh, you know, through the teen years, 20 years, college years, you name it, even today, um, I still see the old nature rise up, the old nature of, of anger at times or, uh, you know, words that are, are inappropriate or thoughts that I shouldn't have. And so it just really is a lifelong struggle. What What is what does the Bible mean in Second Corinthians five seventeen that the the old life is gone, and a new life has come? And I, I just, again, it just grows out of my lifelong struggle with trying to understand what that means. And really, a uh, lot of guilt over that, a lot of confusion. Uh, again, what's wrong with me if this verse is true? Because the old life isn't gone.
0: What have you found to be really some some helpful principles with respect to understanding what it really means for the old to have departed or the old life having gone?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, under, it starts with understanding what, is, what does that phrase mean, the old life is gone? And I, I began at, well, what's gone? And so, you know, I, I talk about... At least three different things that are gone. You know, Ephesians 2 says you are no longer separated from God. You are now in his family. So separation from God is gone because of Christ. That's gone. I'm now in his family no matter what, no matter if I'm a sinner or not. If I, if my faith is in Christ, I'm not separated from God. I'm one of his sons, if you're a woman, a daughter in Christ. Uh, the penalty for sin is gone. Uh, you know, Christ, uh, by, on the work of the cross, took, took every sin of mine, past, present, and future. And anybody who's in Christ, you know, your past sin, your present sins, and your future sins have been paid for in full through Christ's all-sufficient work on the cross. So I'm not going to be penalized for my sin because that penalty was paid for, was taken upon Jesus' death on the cross. So I'm no longer separated. That's gone. I'm not, I'm not going to be penalized for my sin eternally. That's gone. And then the third thing I, I began thinking about in the statement, the old life is gone, is bondage from sin is gone, enslavement to it. So while well, I still sin, that's not gone. I, I still have a tendency to sin. That's my reality. That's your reality, Bob. That's every believer's reality. We still sin. I don't care who you are. Believe it or not, we still sin. So that's not totally gone, our tendency to sin. But we don't have to be enslaved. We don't have to be in bondage to it. You know, Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature. The sinful nature is still in me. But I don't have to be controlled by it. Uh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So really, it's, it's, I don't have to be mastered or controlled by... I still sin, but hopefully as I grow in my faith, it has less control over me. I'm not enslaved by it. I don't have to be constantly wallowing around it. I can gain a degree of freedom from the tentacles that sin has had on my life. So those three things are gone, being separated, the penalty, and bondage. What isn't gone is I still will sin at times.
0: Bob Merritt here on The Intersection. Learn more about the church through eaglebrookchurch.com. You can find Pastor Merritt on Facebook through Pastor Bob Merritt, M-E-R-R-I-T-T. Well, next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Randy Newman. He has served with Crew and Campus Crusade for Christ for over 30 years. He's a senior teaching fellow for apologetics and evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. He shared with me some observations from his research on Christian converts as he outlines in the book Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. Here now is Randy Newman.
2: First, let me say uh, I purposed in my mind and I told the, those people that I was going to be interviewing that I needed to talk to them for 45 minutes to an hour. It had to be at least 45 minutes because we have a lot of sort of survey level research where you just send somebody a quick survey on the Internet and they fill it out and it takes them 10 minutes. Um, And that that research is very helpful and it's valuable. But the kind of research I wanted to do was different was hearing people tell their story. And then I would go back and circle back at things and ask him questions to repeat certain parts. And there are things that come out after 30 or 35 minutes that people wouldn't have put on a quick 10 minute questionnaire and there are things that people realize about their story that they didn't realize before. I mean, it was amazing to me how many times around 35 minutes or so I would say, now you said this and you also said this, how do, how do those fit together? And they would go, Oh, I never saw that connection. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, I just remembered somebody who was really important in the story and I left them out. And um, it, it was really beautiful to see that things came to the surface after time. Um, but to answer your question about some of the trends, well, the biggest ones were that, that people tended to come to faith gradually. It took a long time, and it was incremental. They would they would realize this, and then they would realize this. It didn't all come together at once. So that was a very big finding. The other thing that was a little surprising but, but really beautiful was pe- people tended to hear the message from a lot of different people. Hmm. Um, the way I word it in the book is people come to faith communally. They, they hear it from this friend, and then they go to church and they hear this sermon, and then they read this chapter in this book, and then they go to a Bible study, and they, they have to hear it from six or seven different input sources before it all starts clicking. So it's not just one person and one conversation, it's much more of a multifaceted or multi-delivery system. Um, the other thing that I, I, I actually started charting and made a pretty elaborate chart, um, which is not in the book, but it's in my research findings, was um, there's different aspects of the gospel that connect to people, at least at the starting point. Um, we We always have to zoom in on the center the 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 very heart of the gospel that Jesus died a sacrificial atoning death um as a propitiation for people 's sins yes but 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 the Bible also talks about the gospel as reconciliation and redemption and new birth and um cleansing, and all all these different images and different words. And so for different people, there were different starting points. Not everybody begins with, oh, I feel guilty about my sin. I need forgiveness. Now, that's that's where they have to end up, for sure. But some people don't feel guilty. They feel shame. Or some people feel, boy, that just doesn't make any sense. Is there some kind of picture that makes sense out of things? Or... Um, some people feel alienated and lonely, and they, they don 't feel like they connect to anybody they don 't feel like they connect to god they don 't feel so for them, the aspect of the gospel that 's reconciliation is actually a more important starting point than justification and and i just I, I started seeing that the gospel is a multifaceted message, and people are multifaceted beings. So we shouldn't be surprised if different aspects of it connect with different people. And even look at, you know, the way Jesus talked to different people in the Gospels. He had a very different uh, starting point with Nicodemus, say, in John chapter 3, than he had in the very next chapter with the woman at the well. Um, Both of them were lost sinners who needed the same Gospel. But for one, the starting point is you must be born again, and for the other one is um, wouldn't you like to have some water that never left you thirsty?
0: Randy Newman here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website randydavidnewman.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. The podcast can also be found through that Media Center. You can subscribe to it free through iTunes. Also through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There is also a link to video content. Content from the Meeting House program in the Intersection podcast can be found through the Faith Radio website or through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you go to faithradio.org. It's available through a number of other apps as well. Find out more when you visit the Meeting House homepage. That's at meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. Moving on now on The Intersection podcast, it's Dan Gainer. He serves as vice president of Tech Watch for Media Research Center. He provided comments and analysis about a recent hearing by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding the influence of large technology companies and instances of censorship of content. From a recent conversation, this is Dan Gainer now. There were
3: some interesting takeaways, I mean certainly, both Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley uh, really made a good account of themselves, and I would say to a lesser extent so did uh, Marshall Blackburn they They all held his the the google guy 's feet to the fire. Uh, the number one takeaway I would say has to be from dr. Robert Epstein, and Dr. Epstein was one of the one of the people testifying at the hearing. He used to be uh, head of psychology today. He's got 40 years of social science research, and he's liberal and and supported Hillary Clinton. Okay, so that's the context. And then he turns around and says that not only did Google boost Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election to the tune of 2.6 to 10.4 million votes, but he's warning about what the tech companies are gonna do in twenty twenty. He said they're liberal organizations, they are motivated in liberal ways, that you know, and he thinks there's fifteen million votes that they can turn in one election. Think about that. Fifteen million votes you can turn the entire country red or blue depending on your interest. Well, you know what color they want to turn it. Because the tech companies are staffed by liberal people, so much so that Google recently tried to have it a uh, a um, artificial intelligence panel that uh, had the head of Heritage Foundation on it, and they K. Cole James, and they had to cancel the panel because their staff objected to having her on the panel. After the 2016 campaign, uh, two things got leaked out to Breitbart, and I commend them for both of them. One of them was a memo from the the head of uh, Marketing, sort of minority marketing for the company. And in that memo, she admitted that they had tried to boost performance for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election uh, by increasing turnout of Hispanic voters in key states. And then there was also a video of the great freakout of Google employees, including Google executives, after Donald Trump won. Well, so basically, these international companies filled with American liberals and then international liberals are trying to control our politics. And Ted Cruz called them on that. And Josh Connolly called them on very clearly on the fact that you know, they don't seem interested in working with the U.S. government, but they seem real interested in working with the dictators in, in China who have locked up more than a million Uyghur Muslims because of their faith. So, you know. Can you trust a company that that backs a government like that?
0: You know, there are those that would say these types of discussion might lead to further discussion or at least uh, consideration of more government control of the Internet. Is that where we are heading? If it is, that also is problematic, isn't it?
3: Well, we're definitely heading toward more government control because that's what because not only do the other countries want it. These social media companies want it because they want it because they realize they're being asked to do things that they're that are beyond their capabilities. Decide what speech stays and what speech goes, and then they're also want to set up rules because they set up rules, then competitors can't come in and defeat them. So if they if they set up really expensive processes, then nobody can afford to do it, and so they they own the marketplace. So what they're trying to do is what uh, people will recognize this term, if, depending on your economic training, regulatory capture, where you instead of the regulations being used to hurt companies and restrict them, in fact, they manipulate the way the regulations are done so that they help them keep competitors out of the out of the workplace.
0: Hm. So so what um, moving forward, what do you see transpiring or unfolding here?
3: Well, I mean, what has to happen is when what we've been trying to do with the Free Speech Alliance, and there's up to 56 organizations in it right now, what we've been trying to do with the Free Speech Alliance is get conservatives on, singing from the same hymn book. Because uh, to paraphrase Ben Franklin, if we, you know, if we don't hang together, we will, we can, we'll surely all hang separately. Hey, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's where we're going. We're trying to speak with one voice because if we don't speak with one voice. Then they will use the right versus right argument. To say, see, hey, we listened to some conservatives. They said it was okay if we did this.
0: Dan Gaynor here on the intersection. The MRC website is MRC.org. Next on this edition of the Intersection, it's David Curry, president and CEO of Open Doors USA. In our conversation, he discussed the second ministerial to advance religious freedom in Washington, D.C., and commented on activities surrounding the event in which the ministry was involved. From that recent conversation, this is David Curry now.
4: Well, it is the efforts of the trump administration and secretary of state pompeo to bring forward the discussion of what's happening around the world around religious liberty and human rights as regards to religious liberty it's not just about the expression of christian faith although that's certainly why open doors is there to discuss the persecution of christians in many many parts of the world but there are also people from other faiths discussing some of the issues that they're facing as well and it was a really good discussion i think what we have been calling for for some time has been a an elevation of human rights and religious liberty in in the government discussions with some of our partners around the world people like India and Saudi Arabia that we are clearly cooperating with but also in some of our discussions with the people who are continually problematic countries like Nigeria Somalia North Korea uh, uh, Sudan, when we're looking at these countries that continually have uh, crises arising, and you look at the, and cross-reference that with the issues of religious persecution, there is a direct connection, where you see a massive uh, violation of human rights, uh, it usually begins with r- religious persecution, often against Christians, and then it stems out into other bigger issues that clearly affect the Security of the United States in the free world. So uh, I think this is the manifestation of just finally somebody getting it right. They're talking about this issue. We're not a political group, but what we have to recognize Republican or Democrat when somebody steps up and is begins to handle and discuss this important human right uh, at the way it should be.
0: And when you talk about this overall conference, who generally attends? Or are, are they representatives of various countries, uh, state leaders, civic leaders, persecution groups, there, or, or maybe all of the above?
4: Yes, I, there there were some civic leaders, which I I'm sort of categorizing that people who are interested in religious liberty around the world uh, have specific interests in in particular faith groups who might be suffering. The majority certainly is people within the State Department and foreign secretaries in the offices of foreign secretaries around the world. So there were something less than 100 uh, countries that were represented. And there's a discussion at the governmental level, at the civil level, of what this means and how to resolve it and what role should faith play in secular societies and elsewhere. Um, And what role does it need to play if you consider human rights? And then really talking about some of the hard issues. So I think it was a cross-population that really got down to discuss a few things. And hopefully what will result from it is that some of these governments are going to begin to enforce laws that may already be on the books to allow their citizens more religious freedom, uh, begin to put together alliances where we could push forward this human right. And I think it's going to – I think it could be a very positive thing.
0: I know the vice president, in his comments, mentioned open doors, identifying North Korea as the worst persecutor of Christians for the last 18 years. So what did you find was being said or addressed with respect to North Korea?
4: Well, there seemed to be a recognition that I had not heard before that the State Department was willing to bring up religious freedom in their discussions with North Korea. Now, where that fits in the scenario, they weren't clear, but it seemed to be a recognition on behalf of pretty much everybody speaking there that that this was a major point of concern in their nuclear discussions and really really understanding that the, the discussions with North Korea aren't limited to nuclear discussions, but just what what would it take for them to be uh, normalized uh, to have normalized relationships with the Western world, the kinds of human rights that people come to expect, and and how we could help them and their citizens move towards that that eventual uh, preferred result. I did have a chance then afterwards to have a few minutes with the Vice President to hear his concerns, and I can tell you he's 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 very much concerned about what's happening in India, what's happening in in north korea as regards to the persecution of christians and other minorities so i was you know encouraged by his his uh, certainly his knowledge on the subject was was extensive and and his personal interest
0: david curry here on the intersection the ministry's website is opendoorsusa.org finally on this edition of the intersection podcast author speaker and counselor luann dunnock She shared with me recently the connection between turmoil of the soul and physical manifestations about which she relates in the book, Soul Mend, Discover Spiritual and Emotional Health. Here now is Luann Dunnock.
5: About 25 years ago, I was what we call agoraphobic, which means that I did not leave my house. Mm. I had so much fear even just to go to church, to go to the grocery store, and here I was a Christian. Here I was reading my scriptures, praying, doing everything I knew to do, and yet I was so stuck. And honestly, the Lord has been very gracious because it's like an onion peeling back layer by layer, root by root. But I talk about in the book three sources of negative thought. And where we get our negative thinking comes from, one, either past trauma or abuses, two, generational patterns of thought, or three, what I like to call demonically inspired thought. And I had all three working against me that contributed to that condition.
0: Well, elaborate just a bit when you talk about these three different areas actually combining a, a very toxic mic, a mix from a spiritual standpoint. So elaborate just a bit as far as how these actually combine to, to really cause some, some issues for you.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. So my background, I grew up in a household of fear. My mom was married to somebody who was very abusive to her and would have a gun. And so I learned from an early age that fear was something that was daily with me. And so when I grew up, that followed me because I never dealt with those issues of trauma and abuse. So my lenses, if you will, that I look through the world were that of fear, because I experienced so much fear, and that contributed to the agoraphobia. And then generational patterns of thought, you know sometimes in family lines, worry runs down the family line, or anger, or addictions, or sexual sin. And I go into at length in the Bible on how to deal with those generational curses. You know, as a Christian, we shouldn't have to live underneath that. And God talks about that in the Bible. You know, the Bibles are our manual, our instruction for living. And that third one that demonically inspired thought, oh my gosh, one time during a worship service, I had so much fear, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, are these thoughts my own, or is this the enemy? And he showed me a row of dominoes, and he said, all the devil has to do is hit one domino, Mm. and then if we don't stop that one domino, we will spiral down. So that contributed to the fear, too. But let me just say that there is hope, and that there is a way out. And that if you stick close with the Lord and you seek some you know, biblical counseling, there is a way out of this. In fact, I went back to school and I thought, I want to help other people because right. I know what it's like to be in bondage.
0: And you were diagnosed, as I understand it, with severe adrenal fatigue. And so there's that physical yes. manifestation there. So, and again, just to, to get you to share a little bit more about your journey, how is it that you... Was it sure. just? Did you come to a point where you just said, "I'm tired of, of feeling this way. I'm tired of struggling." It was it. Was it the physical manifestation that really became kind of the the trigger or the catalyst to perhaps get some help in dealing with this?
5: Sure. Well, scripture is very clear that you know, as the mind thinks, so the body follows, and there's a lot of scriptures to support that. And what happened to me after about ten years of living in a lot of fear? I became, I got diagnosed with something called adrenal fatigue. And what adrenal fatigue is, the body for me was that the body just shut down. I didn't even have the energy to yawn, I was housebound for a year. I couldn't hardly walk from one room to the next. And because my body was so exhausted from all the fear and all the panic attacks that my body literally reacted to that. Now, let me just tell you an interesting fact that most people don't know is that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has come out and said that 80% of all sickness has a stressor behind it. So as a counselor, mm. when somebody says that they're, that they're sick, I just want to point out um, autoimmune diseases you know that is the body fighting the body and so i find and research supports this, that people that are hard on themselves that don't like themselves that don't value themselves they're warring against themselves and guess what that plays out And i don't have the time in this interview i go into at length in the book to talk about the research that supports when our mind is toxic eventually if we don't deal with it our body will be toxic
0: Luann Dunnock here on the intersection. Her website is Luann Dunnock. That's D U N N U C K dot com. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more when you go to the programming section at faithradio.org or visit meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to The Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in The Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through that homepage, One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter at Access The Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content. Content from The Meeting House program and The Intersection podcast can be found through the Faith Radio website, through meetinghouseonline.info, or through the Faith Radio app. Learn about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. Also through the Meeting House homepage, you can find out about other apps through which content from the Meeting House can be found. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.